All right, let's stand together for the reading of God's authoritative word. Genesis chapter 30. Hear God's word to you this very morning. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, How happy I am! The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time a husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him, borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless us to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. I may refer to some points of, uh, of the text we didn't read at the end of chapter 30, but um, mainly it's the verses that we already had read. All right, so quick recap when you're watching a, a movie or a series. You know, last time on, like I like to say, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, last time in the book of Genesis, in Jacob's crazy life, um, when we left him last time, uh, Pete spoke on it last week, Jacob had that powerful dream. If you remember, he was running away from his brother um, Esau who wanted to kill him because he deceived Esau twice and stole his birthright, as it were, through deceit. 
And if you remember also, his mom and dad wanted to send him back to her relatives, so that Rebecca's relatives, so that he could marry uh, in the faith, as it were, and not with the Canaanites. So, and that's when God appeared to him with that um, wonderful, incredible dream. And think about it, he saw this stairway to heaven, what it literally what it looked like, and the angels of God were ascending and descending, and of course you had God right at the bottom. And talk about vivid dreams. Like, you ever have a dream that when you wake up you go, oh man, it was just a dream. <laughs> I've had dreams like that. But the dream was so incredible, and, and Think about it this way. Do you ever have a dream, and no matter how vivid it is, uh, you can only remember kind of like fragmented things from it? You know what I mean? Or you kind of like gibberish, the words you remember are gibberish. But in this case, this was a dream given by God himself, and God in this dream makes himself very, very clear. He speaks his word, and he reiterates the promise that was given to Jacob through Isaac, but this time God gives the promise directly. It's not through his dad Isaac blessing him. It's through God telling him, which is really incredible. And Pete um, did a, a wonderful job, I'm sure, uh, showing us last week that God promised to make Jacob into a great people, that his descendants would be more numerous than the dust on the earth. Sound familiar? He said that to Abraham. He said that to Isaac. And now he says it to Jacob. He says that all Nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Jacob and his offspring. And then he gave um, this wonderful promise in verse 15 from chapter 28. Listen, this is important to understand the rest of the story. God says this to him. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. What I've promised you. Now talk about a fortifying and a strengthening promise. Talk about a promise that gives you life. It's interesting though, and this is, this is where, where our story really gets interesting. As Jacob leaves Bethel, he just gets this wonderful promise. God's going to bless him. He's going to have this great big family. His family is going to bless the rest of the world. And yet, no, longer, no sooner, sooner that he reaches this eastern land, and think about this. It's important to see this. What does he have? He's got nothing. He doesn't have a dowry for any bride. He, um, Isaac didn't send him with camels and with sheep and servants. He's all by himself. Hundreds of miles from home. I think you need to see it. No money, no flocks, no family. Now, his brother, who didn't get the promises, has a couple wives already and is already building a family. Yet he's alone. He's far from home. And remember, this is really important, too. He's a fugitive. It's not a fun position to be in when you know your life's threatened. And you're always looking over your shoulder to see if Esau is going to show up. That's Jacob's real situation. And as I thought of this, I thought of an old Bob Dylan song. And it goes like this. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging your next meal. 
And then, of course, that chorus, some of you will start to recognize it. How does it feel to be on your own with no direction home? Like a complete unknown. Sound familiar? Like a rolling stone. That was Jacob. Totally on his own. Totally unknown. Humanly speaking, nothing to show for himself. And One preacher I listened to put it this way. God promised him more descendants than the dust on the earth, and yet Jacob was what? Just a speck. There was no dust. There was one little speck. I mean, think of it this way, too. And that's why I told you I have to read all this, because it's deep when you really think about the big picture of Genesis so far. Here you have two generations after God first made the promise that he was going to bless Abraham with what? A people and a land. And after those three generations later, what has God done? One person. By himself. Unmarried. No nest egg for the future. You know, I remember when I was uh, first considering marriage, my mom was pretty upset because we didn't have no uh, nest egg. Some of us can feel, feel that, right? Well, Jacob certainly didn't have that. But here's the thing. That was all about to change, as we just read in our text. And, and here's the thing I think that's so important for us to see as we step back and look at the big picture. What did Jacob have to go on in his life? As he looked about him, he saw the circumstances in his, his life, the craziness, the trouble, the barrenness. He only had one thing to go on. And it's important for you, and it's important for me to understand this. He had the bare promises of God. That's it. Just what God said. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but you ever look at your life sometimes? You read what God says in his word, you do your devotions, and then you actually look at your life? You with me? You awake? And you say, uh, something ain't adding up here. It's right at that moment that we find out, do we believe? Do we take God at his promises even when the devil, the world, our sinful nature seems to scream the opposite, our circumstances scream the opposite? And we think, how in the world could God's promises ever come to pass now that this happened in my life, in the church's life? You look at the world today and you look at the church and you say, wow. God promised to bless his church. God promised that he was going to have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we look at the state of the church today and we say, what? How are you going to pull that off? Because we are a hot mess. Can I get an amen? Amen. But remember, this is what Jacob had. I will bring you back to this land, meaning the promised land where his family Isaac and Rebekah were. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Mm -mm -mm. Sometimes in life it looks like our life is not only not progressing, but it's going really on the fast track in the wrong direction. So what I'm going to give you this morning, I'm going to give you some big overarching lessons from these chapters rather than a theme and then develop points. And I'm gonna, the first one we see, the first overarching lesson is this. This is important for you to hear because it was important for me. When present circumstances seem to contradict God's promises, always go with God's promises because they can be trusted 100%. Now, if you've been with us through the book of Genesis, 
I know there is the temptation to say, Pastor, you've been saying that throughout the book of Genesis. But all I have to say is, it ain't my fault. That's what Genesis keeps telling us. Now, why does Genesis keep telling us this? And why do we need to hear it every Sunday? Because then you go home for another six days and you hear the devil's lies. And the world's lies. Over and over and over. Trying to squeeze you into its mold. Trying to make you think the way the world thinks. Opposed to God. And what you learn on Sunday, I'll tell you, sometimes even by Monday, you're like, uh, what do you say? One illustration came to my mind, and it was a biblical illustration. Remember good old Peter, the Apostle Peter. If you remember when Jesus first met him, this always it chokes me up. You remember the whole story where um, he was fishing all night and he didn't catch nothing? You remember that? And then Jesus says, throw your net on that side. And what does Peter say? Lord, what do you think we've been doing? We've been throwing it on that side. We ain't got nothing. But because you say so, we'll do it. You remember he throws his net over? What happens? There's so many fish that they can't even pull it up on the boat. And what's interesting though is here, it was, it's Peter's response, I think, was the proper response for meeting God come visit us in the flesh, by the way. He falls on his face and he says what? Do you remember? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But do you remember what Jesus says? Get up, Peter. He doesn't say get up, but that's, that's implied. He says this. Do not be afraid. I will make you a fisher of men. That's a promise. When Jesus gives you a promise, you can take it all the way to the... Praise the Lord, I got this promise. But you may remember, prior to Jesus' crucifixion, something happened with Peter. You remember this? I would never deny you. Everybody else, is Pete would deny, but I ain't going to deny you. What does Jesus say? Before the cock crows, three times, in front of the, everybody, you're going to say you don't even know me. You remember what Peter did? Three times. I tell you, I don't know the man. And after the third time, and he remembered what Jesus said, and it says he went out and whipped, wept bitterly. So after Jesus rose from the dead, you know where Peter was? Holding on to the promise of God, right? No. He went back to fishing. Not for men this time. He went back to his old trade, and he went to fishing. And you remember who met him after that? Jesus. And Jesus said what to him? Peter, do you love me? You know, that whole thing, three times. And each time he said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. What's the whole point? The whole point is Jesus was forgiving Peter, and he was keeping his gracious promise because he said, you're going to be a fisher of men. And when God makes a promise, even when we mess up royally, He's going to keep his promise. Now, it may, may be a little painful on our end sometimes as we learn certain lessons. Um, certainly, Peter was knocked down a lot of pegs when he had to look at the rest of the disciples who he just bragged that he would never deny. And they didn't deny him, and he did. But God, in his grace and his mercy, kept his word. Well, the same is true here with Jacob in Genesis 29. The earthly prospect in his life was pretty grim. But you know what's really cool? The heavenly perspective was right on schedule. 
God knew what he was doing, even in the midst of that craziness. Jacob was about to see the promises begin to be unfolded before his very eyes, and it was going to bring him great joy and great relief initially. And that's where our passage begins in 29 verses uh, 1 and following. I'm just going to read the first few verses. Look with me again at verse uh, 1 of chapter 29. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples, where he saw a well in the field, with three flocks of sheep lying near, near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. The, reader wants us, the writer wants us to know this, Moses. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahir's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob answered them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Talk about a sight for sore eyes. Talk about everything he's been, the whole reason he, was, he went to this land and why he traveled so far. And think about this. What are the chances, humanly speaking, this is the crazy thing, that the very first group of people that he meets in the land of the eastern peoples, that they would know Laban, his uncle, the very person that his mother and his father sent him to meet, and then if that isn't enough, that he would lay eyes on his future bride, the daughter of his uncle Laban. These are the first people he meets. Now, that's how you know God's hand was in this thing, because it really is. I mean, we would call it what? What a coincidence. But I like to call it a God incidence. So I remember one time, speaking of Sicily, this hopefully will remind you to pray for me when I'm over there. Um, I was looking for a, a long-lost relative, and I only had a tiny bit of information. Their last name was Morteo. And I knew, somebody had told me, I, I did some research, that the Morteos work at, at, the, uh, at the port, at the seaport. And so I'm with Donna and Tom, my friends, and that's all the information I had to go on in his last name. And I said, I know, guys, this is going to kill you because we're going to do, we're going to walk all the way down there, we're going to go to the port, and I'm going to be searching for my relative, and, and we could come up empty, and you're going to be like, Sant, you're killing me. We spent all this day. So long story short, I get there. It's pretty dead at the port. I go to the back of a restaurant, which was kind of sketchy, and there are a bunch of older guys sitting in this back table. Like, I'm wondering, I don't know what's going on here. So I go up to the first guy, and, and of course, we never met each other before, and I just simply asked him, do you know the Morteos? Um, he works on a ship here. And, and you know what he says? Yeah, I got him in my phone. You want, him, want me to call him? And Tom and Donna were both like, <laughs> and no lie, we called the guy. I ended up having dinner with him. He's my long-lost cousin. But I mean, talk about, you know, I, I could see Donna and Tom going, oh, not another one of your lame brain ideas. And here, and I'll never forget what Donna said, because it really convicted me that I didn't even think about it. She goes, Santo, God is always with you when you're here in Italy. And it really just hit me. It sure has nothing to do with my stumbling, dopey plans. It's that God in his mercy is working. Now, it's a simple thing for me to find my cousin. But I, I, how, this is even a much more important thing because this has to do with the history of redemption. It has to do with God keeping his promise about sending Jesus to save us from our sins. A much bigger thing. But here we have God all the way leading Jacob, being there for him like he what? Promised, I will be with you. 
And so what happens here? So this is a divine appointment, without a doubt. And look, look at uh, Jacob's response again. I think it's so important to see Jacob's response. When Jacob, verse 10, saw Rachel's daughter, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep out loud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. So things were definitely beginning to fall into place. And it's, it's worth noting, where does he meet his future bride? By a well. Where did his father meet his wife, Rebecca? By a well. And the interesting thing is, it could have been the same well. The text doesn't tell us, but it was the same region, same area, was where Laban uh, lived. So there's something about wells. I, 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 don't, I won't digress and talk about the woman at the well in um, uh, John chapter 4, but I will say this. Remember the woman at the well when Jesus met with her and asked for a drink? She said, she said are you greater than our, our, our father who? Jacob, who gave us this well? And uh, you, you would think Jesus is going to say something like, I'm that stairway that he saw. You follow me? But and eventually he does say, he tells her, I am he, I am the Messiah. But that's for another day. But it is cool link, isn't it? This whole well thing. So Jacob cries with joy, and Rachel runs to tell her father the news. Now look at Laban's reaction. This is pretty interesting. Verse 13, as soon as Laban hears the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Now listen, this is important. This is why you have to know the whole story. And I'm going to help you here. Remember back in Genesis 24, when Isaac goes um, to meet Rebekah, that's Laban's sister, by the way, if you remember, um, Isaac has a big dowry. He has uh, sheep and he has um, flocks and he has a bunch of gifts like, um, um, what does it say here, um, costly ornaments. And if you remember, um, Isaac, Isaac's, the servant of Abraham, gives the costly ornaments not only to Rebekah's mother, but to Rebekah's brother who? Laban. So why, why do you think... Laban rushed out when he heard about it to go see Jacob because he was thinking what? I'm in the money. Because uh, he remembered last time. Last time that family made him rich. So he thought, oh, another, another payday, another gravy train. So he goes out and he's happy to see Jacob because he's thinking this is going to be great. But of course we notice, we'll talk about it in a moment, it wasn't the same story, was it? But another, another notable thing we have to see here in these two verses that I just read is the fact that Jacob, upon going to Laban's home, notice this, told him all these things. In other words, what, did, what are all these things that Jacob told Laban? Well, all these things are what? About how he ended up having to come to the east and, and live there for a while. How he had deceived his brother. Are you with me? How he tricked him. How he's a refugee. And, and how his father and mother sent him there for a wife. And so it makes a lot of sense when Laban says, we don't find this out till later in the story, when Laban says, you really are my flesh and blood. You know what Laban's saying? You're a chip off the old block. 
In other words, oh, so you're a deceiver too. It runs in the family. Because we're going to see Laban is quite the deceiver himself. You remember, Rebecca was good at it. Jacob's good at it. Now we're going to see Laban is a master. Um, he's better than the other two. And so definitely trickery runs deep in this side of Jacob's family, as we're going to see. So Jacob stays with Laban for a whole month before Laban says this, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. And it's right here that the story begins to pick up steam. And then I want to read this, because this is where it starts to really pick up. Verse 16, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. So here's the issue. Especially in those days, you had to have a big dowry that you had to give to the family if you wanted to marry their daughter. What did Jacob have? Nothing. So this is what Jacob says. And he knows that this is going to be a good deal because it's way more than you would usually pay for a dowry. He says, I will work, what, seven years for your daughter's hand in marriage. That was huge. And the text wants us to be aware that Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah. And then notice in the text, she had weak eyes. Now, commentators go on and on trying to explain and try to figure out what weak eyes mean. But we obviously know in the context, what, what does it basically mean? She wasn't physically attractive. She wasn't beautiful to the eye. Because she's contrasted with her younger sister, Rachel, who was what? lovely in form and beautiful and Moses wants us to see because he's the author human author of Genesis and so that means the Holy Spirit wants us to see who's the ultimate author of Genesis that Jacob loved Rachel and don't forget she was the first one he met right and you remember there was this love at first sight he kisses her and you remember she goes running back to tell her dad so you could tell right away it was one of those moments where they locked eyes, and they, they knew that um, God was bringing them together. And, of course, Laban accepts the, the offer of seven years of work. Who wouldn't? And he says this, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. Now, the cool thing is this, all, this has the makings of a great romantic film, doesn't it? Maybe even a rom-com, as my, my wife told me, romantic comedy. I don't know. That's what she said. Um, and verse 20 seems to cap it all off. Look, this is where it gets really good. So Jacob served, uh, um, served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Think about it this way. Only crazy, head-over-the-heels type of love is going to make you feel like seven years is a few days. You with me? Because for me, seven years sometimes feels like 20 years. And yet for him, because he loved her so much, it seemed like just a few days. And so after the seven years, Jacob rightly says to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed. <laughs> Hallelujah. And I want to lie with her. And that's to consummate the marriage. 
So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. So here's the second thing I want to point out. That's a big takeaway. And, I, and it's important for us to learn this lesson too from this text. Receiving God's clear promise of blessing, which cannot be thwarted, we've seen that, does not mean we sit back and wait for them to happen. I'm so sick of, of people criticizing those of us who believe God is sovereign and that say, well, if God is sovereign, then why do we bother doing anything? Well, we see in the Bible, God's sovereignty is never an excuse for laziness, but it's always an impetus for what? For us to give all of ourselves to the promises of God in action, to serve God, to love God, to worship God, to evangelize, because we know God's got this. It doesn't make us lazy, it makes us work even harder. Because we know in the end, book of Revelation, what? Jesus wins. So we want to be on the right side, fighting for the one who wins. Why do I mention it from the text? Because notice, Jacob has this great promise, I will not leave you till I have accomplished all that I promised you. But Jacob, as soon as he gets to that well and sees those men, he goes right to work. Did you see that? Right away, he's schmoozing with those guys. Right away, he's, he's and, and by the way, you notice what he did? All by himself, he takes that huge rock and he moves it out of the way so that he could water the flock. The point being, usually it takes a bunch of shepherds to move that rock. But he was, he was showing himself, he was, he was impressing Rachel, right? He was saying, I'm a manly man, look at this, I'm going to feed your flock. And then he, he, he goes on, he has nothing to offer Laban, but he comes up with his own plan, his own initiative. I'll work seven, seven years for him. And so that's, that's a lesson for us, a good lesson. Uh, although there aren't many from Jacob's life, but it's a good lesson that God's promises should never lead us to a K, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be type of attitude. It's unbiblical, it's ungodly, and it's not based on faith. That's based on presumption. Rather, it should always be a deep, solid encouragement to engage all our faculties in glorifying our Lord Jesus Christ and kingdom living. By the way, that's where you can say amen. amen. 1 Corinthians 15.10, you may remember Paul said this. This has always been an encouragement and a convicting thing to me. Paul says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So guess what? Grace works. You follow that? There. Good. Excellent. Thank you for preaching back. I like that. Now, of course, in Jacob's case, his working was mixed, okay? His working was crooked and twisted at times, deceitful. He wasn't quite fully surrendered to the Lord yet. We're going to see the Lord was not done with him yet. He was still a work in progress, and yet God still works even in this crazy saint. So up to this point, so far, so good. Just a couple more minutes this morning. Um, this has all the makings of a great romantic comedy like I mentioned, but in the very next verse... It takes a drastic turn, and it goes from a, a romantic comedy, literally, to a tragedy. We're going to see the story totally change. 
we go from laughing and rejoicing to literally, as my wife would say, getting out the tissues and crying. Because look at verse 23. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Laban's really working it, isn't he? Sometimes in life, the principle of reaping what you sow doesn't come into fruition until glory in the life of the world to come. Certainly that's how the New Testament uh, teaches um, when we look at Galatians, when that verse comes up. A man will reap what he will sow. But in the case of Jacob's life, all of his scheming, all of his deceiving, deceiving, and all of his striving was finally coming back to bite him. He's about to get a taste of his own medicine. And that's why you see up here um, behind me, the deceiver gets deceived. The trickster gets tricked. In Laban, Jacob meets his match. He says, I'll see yours and raise you ten. Don't miss the irony of it because there's a lot of it. Think about it this way. Uh, first, Jacob, who deceived his father and older brother to gain the birthright of the older brother, now gets deceived by be give, being given the older daughter in marriage instead of the younger. You see that? And it sure seems like Laban's run, rubbing it in a bit when he says, hey, I don't know where you're from, but it's not the custom around here, around these parts, to give the younger before you give the older. You get it? That would have been a dig. You might have tricked people in, back where you live, but where we're from, it's older first, then younger. Sorry, my bad. In other words, it may have worked back where you come from, but it don't cut it here. Richard Combs puts it this way. He's getting a taste of his own medicine. It's exquisite justice. Jacob had cruelly deceived his father. Now he is cheated by his father-in-law. Jacob had deceived by means of impersonation. Now he is duped by disguise. Jacob had stolen the rights of an older brother. Now he is denied his rights by an elder sister. In other words, remember when he put on the disguise and he had hairy arms to trick Esau? Well, now what? Leah comes in, probably in full garb, disguised as Rachel. And he gets tricked pretty good, doesn't he? Now, we don't know if it was how he got tricked, whether it was because it was at night and it was dark. She had a veil over her face. Maybe at the celebration, he kind of was drinking back on grandpa's cough medicine a little too much. We don't know how. But we know, like a dope, he slept with the wrong sister. <laughs> And I'm sorry, but his response, Jacob's response to the whole thing is really rich. Listen to what he says. What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now, if you've been tracking with us in Genesis, you've got to say, really? Seriously, uh, Jacob? You're going to get on your high horse and you're going to protest the very behavior that you engage in regularly? It doesn't seem to bother you when you deceive everybody else and their mother. 
But somebody deceives you and you do what? You cry foul. Hey, not fair. Now listen, this is important. This is why gospel transformation is so powerful. Because when God saves us by his grace in Jesus, we begin to follow the golden rule as sinners saved by grace. This golden rule that Jesus taught those who believe in him. Do unto others what you would have them do for you. Or do to you, excuse me. Jacob wasn't living like that, was he? He wasn't quite there yet. So big lesson number three. This is the last one I think we can get to tonight. Those whom God saves by his grace, God disciplines by his grace. For their good, for his glory, and the blessing of others. Now look, verse 7. I mean, I mean, uh, I saw 7 there, sorry. Seven years seemed like a few days when he was awaiting Rachel's hand in marriage. But think about it. The next seven years of Jacob's life, right, were filled with what? Family strife, with trouble with infighting, and with tension, to say the least. What did you have? You have the sisters battling back and forth who could have more kids. You with me? Did you see this? You have, and I'm sorry, but when you look at Leah, and I don't know about you, but whenever I read this passage, my heart bleeds for her. My heart does break for poor Leah. But I saw something for the first time in my study of the text this week. And, and I really need to, to bring this to your attention. I never saw this before. But you realize that to some degree or another, Leah was complicit in, in, in the whole deception scheme? What do I mean by that? She knew she was tricking Jacob, that her dad was tricking Jacob. She dressed up the part. She may believe she was Rachel. And whether it was by coercion or as a willing partner in crime, she pretended to be her sister. So this makes it even sadder to me. I mean, again, and again, throughout the story, we will see the Bible points out she was not loved by Jacob. But you have to ask the question, Leah, didn't you see this coming? I mean, did, did you, you knew, you, you saw for seven years Jacob and Rachel playing back and forth doing googly eyes, totally in love with each other, did you think somehow that you were going to make him love you by tricking him? What actually happens when he gets tricked? Do you remember? Jacob despises her more and dislikes her more for what she did. Now, there's a verse in Proverbs I want to bring to your attention that is super heartbreaking. Proverbs 30, 21 to 23. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes king, a fool who is full of food, and then verse 23, an unloved woman who is married. Some of you didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? It's a horrible thing to be a married woman and to be unloved. And Leah was a sad example of this. So it looks like not only was Jacob being disciplined by getting a taste of his own medicine over the years, we see this fighting back and forth, but it looks like Leah was being disciplined for being, playing a part in this as well. But here's the thing. 
true to character, God, no matter who is to blame for the sad, tragic case of an unloved wife. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So here's the thing. Even though she was getting, in many ways, what she deserved, God showed mercy. And we'll see, we see that in the name of the three sons that she gives. Notice she gives uh, Reuben is C, a son. And then you have um, one, one of the sons is called attached. And each time she says, now my husband will what? Love me. But what was the one, the one thing he, that she wanted in her life was her husband's love and she never got it. What's the one thing Rachel wanted? Many children. And she only got a few. And although Jacob speaks in anger when Rachel says, what about me? He says, only God can open a barren womb, basically. Rachel pulls a page out of Sarah's book and offers her maidservant to Jacob. You see, and, and so you have to understand something. What does Jake, you know, you ever hear people say, hey, well, I wish I lived back in Old Testament times so I could marry many wives. Have you read this at all? The man becomes a sperm donor, forgive me. He gets passed around from woman to woman. He doesn't even have a choice. We saw that crazy story, right, with the mandrakes, which makes the Adams family look normal. Where, where she says, hey, look, I bought you with some man jakes. you got to sleep with me. And what does Jacob do? Okay. <laughs> but even in the midst of God's discipline and their dysfunction, notice this. This is what we've got to come to a close with. Jacob now has 11 sons and a daughter. Through all this craziness, all this dysfunction, and even God's disciplining hand, at the same time, God is blessing his family. His family is growing. His, the work of his hands are blessed. He's beginning, as we're going to see later next, next week, he's beginning to gather a lot large flocks and herds. And so now we have what? We have the fulfillment of God's promise beginning to be realized in space and in time. And I'm going to close with this is really important. This is the big takeaway that we'll deal with more next week. Notice this. Whose line does Jesus, the Christ, get traced back to? Whose son? Leah's. Judah. Because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But it doesn't stop there. Whose line does Joseph come from, who back in those days saved the whole family? Rachel. So Rachel is, is the one through whom God sends Joseph to save the whole family. But it ain't done. Who is the main one, the main character, through whom God blesses the world through? It's rascally, deceiving, conniving Jacob. Jacob have I loved. Paul would put it this way later in 2 Timothy 1, 8, and 9. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God 
who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything that Genesis 29 and 30 tells us, it's that. It's that our God is relentless in keeping his promises, and he has kept his promise in Christ Jesus, and he will keep his promise to save you fully from cradle to grave to resurrection. He is a God who keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for these wonderful words of life and for the truth that you keep your promises and as we know, even to the point of your own death on a cross through Jesus. So Lord, we pray the rest of this week we would be mindful of your incredible, amazing, redeeming love and grace and that our lives would, would show the great gratitude we have in the way that we serve you, we worship you, we love you, and we share your love with others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Tis so 